Well, before we get started in the book of John, I wanted to let you guys know that summer Bible studies start this week. So this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. over at the Anderson campus and the college auditorium, I'm going to, to begin a journey with you. I'm going to walk you through 2,000 years of church history over the next few weeks on Wednesday night. So I'm going to kind of fill in the gaps. What happened after the New Testament closed up to now? Okay, so I'm going to fill in that, that data for you so that you understand where you come from and where we come from as a church. And, and as we walk through this, this series we're calling Retro Church, each week we'll look at some history and then we'll look at how that history informs what you do now, how it helps you to be faithful to Jesus today. So I'd love to have you join us Wednesday evenings in the month of June starting this week, 7 p.m., College Auditorium over at the Anderson campus. There is free child care provided if you will register today. So go on our website and register if you want your kids to be uh, in child care. Otherwise, you can just show up. So love to have you starting this Wednesday for Retro Church. Well, one of my favorite movies in the last few years is this one, Hidden Figures. I don't know if you guys saw it. I'm going to totally give away plot. If you didn't, you should go see it. It's a story of Katherine Johnson and her friends, Dorothy and Janelle. And the reason that they're in this movie is because they were brilliant mathematicians who helped NASA to be able to put men in space. This was in the days before uh, computers could compute all the numbers. They were very good at doing that by hand, and so NASA needed them. And the reason the story is so compelling is these are African-American women serving as brilliant mathematicians at a time when in our culture, the assumption was African-American women couldn't do that. Because of centuries of oppression and racism and bigotry, the, the cultural assumption was that people like that couldn't have an impact like that. And so it's this joyful movie to watch as they break all of those stereotypes. What's really cool is actually your Bible contains a lot of those stories. God loves the underdog. God loves to take men and women whom society looks down on and demeans and and rescue them and transform them and use them to do world-changing stuff. And so this morning we're going to look at how God did that in the life of another woman. And so you can turn to John chapter 4. This is the story of the Samaritan woman that we're going to look at today fascinating story. I'm going to show you as we walk through this story some of the background material so that you can can see the Samaritan woman as her contemporaries would, so that you can understand her culture and, and her background. And the big idea that you're going to see is that in Jesus's world, no self-respecting Jewish man would ever be caught dead talking to this woman. And yet Jesus is going to reach out to her and show love to her and rescue her and use her to do extraordinary things. So really an an enjoyable story to read, really powerful story. It begins with an encounter with Jesus. It starts with him. So let's pick it up in verse 3 of chapter 4. He, that is Jesus, left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus has to take a trip. It's a very common trip in the ancient world. He is going to leave the 
star on the bottom of the map, that's Judea, and travel to the star on the north part of the map, that's Galilee. So those are kind of the two places where Jews lived. And if you were a Jew in the first century, you had two roads you could take to get there. One went through the desert on the eastern side, one went along the coast on the western side. Now if you look at that map, you realize pretty quickly, those are way out of the way. There is a much easier, shorter trip. You just go straight up from Judea to Galilee. So why didn't Jews in the first century take the easy route? Because it went through Samaria. So Samaria is the portion in red. Samaria is a region of land named for its inhabitants, the Samaritans. So let me give you a little background. Samaritans came into existence about 700 years before Jesus when a powerful empire called Assyria came in and conquered the northern part of Israel. And and Assyria was cruel. They took most of the Jews living on that map and they took them away to pagan lands far away. And, And they took Gentiles living in those pagan lands and forced them to come occupy that land. So Gentiles moved into all the towns that were abandoned by the Jews when they were exiled. Well, there were some Jews that the Assyrians left in the land, particularly the poor ones. They didn't want those. And so those poor Jews who were left, they did a very un-Jewish thing. They intermarried with the Gentile people. And that new racial group, half Jew, half Gentile, are the Samaritans. Now the key piece of background that you need to know, why did Jews not take the easy road through Samaria? Because Jews hated Samaritans. Jews in the first century utterly hated Samaritans. And we're talking really serious racism here for three reasons. Why did the Jews hate Samaritans so much? Well, reason number one, because to a Jew, the Samaritans were genetically unclean. They had broken the law and intermarried with Gentiles and that polluted their genetics. And so first century Jewish rabbis taught that for a Jew to even eat the bread of a Samaritan was like eating the flesh of a pig. And if you know Jews, practicing Jews can't eat bacon. They can't do that. That's against the law for them. It makes them ceremonially unclean. So the Jews thought, if I even touch, if I even hang out with a Samaritan, it makes me ceremonially unclean because they're genetically impure. First reason they hated them. Second, Jews thought Samaritans were heretics. Because the Samaritans had modified Judaism to fit their needs and desires. So, for example, they'd thrown out all of the Old Testament except the first five books of Pentateuch. That was all they kept. And they rewrote the Pentateuch so that it said God's dwelling place on earth wasn't Jerusalem, where the Jews lived, but was Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans lived. So they modified the Jewish religion, and so the Jews claimed that they were heretics. So you got those two reasons, but really the biggest reason of all Why the Jews hated the Samaritans is because the Samaritans lived on land that the Jews thought belonged to them. The Jews believed God had gave them that land and the Samaritans weren't Jews, but they weren't willing to give up the land. And so in the centuries before Jesus comes, both ethnic groups committed atrocities upon one another over that land. And so Jews utterly hated Samaritans. And so the fact that Jesus was willing to walk through Samaria... And walk through their towns was utterly shocking in his day. So why does he do it? Why is he willing to break this really serious racial taboo and travel through Samaria? Well, it tells you in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Had to. Well, that's not about roads. 
He had two very good roads he could have taken around Samaria. When Jesus says had to, that means he's looking at the Father's will. That's what had to means in the book of John. It means that Jesus had to obey God the Father and God was directing him through Samaria. You see, even though the Jews hated Samaria, God didn't. God saw living in Samaria a whole bunch of people he loved. And so he called his son to visit Samaria and Jesus had to obey. He loved to obey the father. And so Jesus enters into Samaria and, and it's, it's this powerful moment where Jesus breaks all of these religious taboos in his culture to visit these people and, and show them love. And it reminds me of a woman here at Grace Bible Church who I really respect, who uh, for years she served with a ministry called Jesus Says Love. And their ministry was to visit the strip club south of town, what used to be silk stockings. They would, it was her and a bunch of godly women would take care packages to the dancers to show them the love of Jesus. And that sounds amazing, but I'll be honest with you, when I first heard about that ministry, it was a little shocking to me. Because I grew up in a Christian home, and, and I grew up as a good Christian boy. And if there's anything a good Christian boy knows, it's you shouldn't go to a strip club. Even if you're a woman who wants to care for women, that's an immoral place. That's not where good Christian people should be seen. And, and, and so it offended me a little bit. And yet this woman, who I, I really admire, she cared far more about those women than about my religious sensibilities. And so she was willing to offend me to visit them. And I love that. That's exactly what Jesus does in this passage. He is willing to offend an entire nation of Jews to take God's love to the Samaritan people. May we be a church that is willing to sacrifice our respectability to visit the outcasts in need. So that's what Jesus is doing in this passage. And his willingness to go where no Jew should go leads to a, a, a main event where he, he meets our hero in our story this morning, the Samaritan woman. So let's pick it up in verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus is thirsty. It's like noon and it's hot there. And, and he's tired from a long day's journey. His disciples have gone off to find food. He's alone. He's sitting at a well. But wells in the ancient world, it's not like they had a spigot you could turn. You had to have the, the bucket to drop down into it. And so this woman shows up and she can actually get down and, and get the water with her bucket. And Jesus asks her for a drink. And what's remarkable is not what Jesus asks for. What's remarkable is who he asks it from. So Samaritan woman. We already know Jews don't like Samaritans. But this is even worse because this is a woman. And your second piece of background for this story is that in this time period, men demeaned women. Men look down on women as, as basically worthless. Let me read some of their words to you. So here are what first century Jewish men thought of women. Here's Josephus, uh, a Jewish writer in the first century. He says, a woman is inferior to her husband in all things. The Jewish book of Sirach from around the time of Jesus said, better is the wickedness of a man than a woman who does good. It is woman who brings shame and disgrace. 
Now, the crazy thing is, that's what they thought about Jewish women. Imagine what they thought of Samaritan women. Well, actually, we, we know. Here's a first century Jewish legal ruling. They, they decreed that Samaritan women are ceremonially unclean from birth on. A Jewish woman at least could be ceremonially clean occasionally. Samaritan woman, not at all, never. And because of this horrific view of women, Jewish men hardly ever talked with women in public. That just was not done. And so what Jesus is doing here is, is crazy. No one would do that. That's, that's because Jewish boys, here's what Jewish boys were taught in the first century, literally, word for word. So long as a man talks too much with a woman, he brings trouble on himself, wastes time better spent studying the Torah, that is the Bible, and ends up an heir of hell. That's what the Jews thought of women. And yet here is Jesus. And he walks right into Samaria, where no self-respecting Jew would go. And he sits down at a well and has a conversation with a Samaritan woman in public. It's not even like in a house where no one would see, but for the whole town to see. He breaks all of those taboos. And you know it's shocking because look at what his disciples do when they show back up from the store. Look, look down at verse 27. At this point, his disciples came And they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. They can't believe it. They're they're shocked at this. Jesus, what's really fascinating here, Jesus isn't just having a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Did you notice who started the conversation? He did. He initiates it. He's the one who wants to talk to this person. Jesus is willing to break Every social, gender, religious taboo to connect with this woman. It's truly a remarkable story. It's incredible to see his willingness to speak with her. It reminds me of a couple from our church who are missionaries. We're just going to call them J and R for security purposes. They're serving the Lord in South Asia. And there's a lot of things that they do as part of their mission work. But one of them is to take food and supplies to a local orphanage. Now, actually, there's a lot of religious groups that do that in their city. So there's Buddhist groups that will take food and supplies and Hindu groups and Muslim groups and and then them as a Christian group. What's remarkable is that J&R and the Christians with them are the only group that when they visit the orphanage with supplies and food will actually touch the orphans. No one else will because it's a low caste orphanage. The children at the orphanage are viewed by their society as worthless, as trash. They're they're from poor families of no repute. And so those other religious groups will bring them food but won't touch them. They can't do that. That would make them unclean. That's a taboo. And yet the Christians don't care about taboos. They don't care about what culture says. They will break any rule to show love to those kids because in Christianity there is no such thing as an untouchable person. Every person is worthy of touch. Every person is worthy of love and of respect. They're just doing what Jesus did at the well with the Samaritan woman. He initiates a conversation, which no self-respecting Jewish man would ever do in the first century, but he doesn't care about Jewish religious sensibilities. He's going to reach out to this woman in love. 
So truly a remarkable story as Jesus reaches out to her and his willingness to break these barriers leads to an incredible conversation. So let's pick it up in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get the living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to her, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Jesus offers this woman living water. Now, she doesn't get it at first because it is kind of confusing. She thinks he's talking about literal water from a, a well. You draw it up with a bucket. But Jesus clarifies, no, he's talking about eternal life. A forever relationship with God in this life and the next life. That's what we typically call salvation. That's what he's offering her. We know we are sinners, we're separated from God, but Jesus offers us eternal life as a free gift. Now we know more than the Samaritan woman did at this moment because we know the rest of the story. So we know that a few months after this encounter, Jesus purchased that eternal life for us. He he died on the cross for our sins in our place. And then he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death once and for all, so that he could offer eternal life and forgiveness and salvation to everyone for free. All you have to do is say, yes, I want that. He offered that amazing gift of eternal life to this woman. But the the question for, for her is, why believe him? Why should this woman trust that, that this random Jewish guy can give her eternal life? Because remember, this, this lady doesn't know Jesus. She had never met him before this. She doesn't know him from Adam. She doesn't know where he's from. She's never seen him work a miracle. So why should she believe him? That's where the story goes next. Look at verse 16. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
So Jesus does something remarkable in this passage in verse 18. He, he reveals something about this woman's past that there's no way he could have known through natural means. This is supernatural revelation and it convinces the woman, uh, verse 19, that Jesus is a prophet. She knows he, he somehow speaks from God and, and that's remarkable. She's really listening now. But I want for a moment to unpack what Jesus says about her because I misunderstood this for a long time in my life. He talks about the fact that she has had five husbands and now the guy she lives with is not her husband. And and some of those husbands from the past, they probably died. That that happened frequently in the ancient world. So she's probably a widow multiple times over. But but five is a lot. And so chances are good that some of these marriages ended through divorce. And, And now she's living with a guy who isn't even married to her. And so in my youth when I would read that, I would conclude, well, Jesus must be convicting her of sin. You've been divorced a lot of times over, and now you're immorally sleeping with this guy who's not your husband. You are a sinner. I thought that was the point. I was wrong. You get into the background, and you learn some things about what it was like to be a woman in the first century. In Jewish and Sumerian culture, a woman could hardly ever divorce her husband. It took extreme legal situations for a woman to to bring a marriage to an end. In contrast, a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. Literally. In Jewish society, a man could divorce his wife simply because he was tired of her cooking. Once that woman was kicked to the curb, she was vulnerable. Because women in the first century really had no job options. She couldn't work. They also had limited legal rights. So she was incredibly vulnerable. So as a single woman, what she needed was another man in her life to offer protection and provision. And so for this woman, she had five different guys commit to her and then kick her to the curb. And the sixth guy doesn't even have the decency to marry her. Just wants sex without commitment. And so what Jesus is saying about her life is not, look at you, sinner. He's saying to her, look at you, woman who has been used and abused. He sees her as a woman who's been taken advantage of. He sees her as a woman who's been used up by the men in her life and left worthless and valueless in her society. Jesus wants her. Now, realize, if all Jesus wanted to do was show her that he knew stuff supernaturally, he could have just told her what she had for breakfast that day. Why did he choose this piece of information? Because he doesn't just want her to know that he's a prophet. He wants her to know that he sees her pain and her suffering like no one else. So now she, she understands. She, she sees that, that this Jewish man is, is not like others. He sees things that only God could have revealed to him. And so she asks a logical question. Jews and Samaritans had been fighting over religion for centuries. So she wants to know who was right. And Jesus gives her an incredibly surprising answer. Basically, were Jews right or were Samaritans right? Neither. In the end, neither, because God is doing something new. A new day is dawning where it will not matter if you're a Jew or a Samaritan or a Gentile. It won't matter if you're in Jerusalem or Samaria or College Station. God will freely and openly accept everyone on the same terms. That, that's, that's radical. Now, it doesn't feel that way to us. We're so used to that truth that we take it for granted. We have to pause Every once in a while, and remember 
that for millennia of human history, your genetics and geography mattered. If you wanted to spend time with God, what had to be true of you? You had to be genetically related to Abraham, and you had to be in Jerusalem. But now Jesus has come, and he has set all of that aside, and he has created a new way where Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans alike, anywhere on earth, can freely approach God the Father. We do that through Jesus, who at the end of the passage we read, we hear very clearly, how is it that Jesus can welcome all of us into the Father's presence? Because he is the Messiah. He is the, the Christ. Now, that word Messiah and, and Christ, it's the same word. Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek. It means the one whom God has anointed to deliver his people. In, in kind of our common vernacular, we would say Savior. That's what it means. That this is God's Savior. Jesus is Savior to the world. That's what Jesus meant when he said salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. So quite literally, salvation has come through the Jew to all of us. On equal terms, we come to the Father through truth and spirit. Jesus points at both of those. What does he mean? Through the truth of who Jesus is. You approach the Father by believing the truth about the Son, that Jesus is our Savior who died and rose for us. And you come to the Father through the Spirit. What he's doing there is contrasting how Jews and Samaritans tried to approach God through all these rituals, all these ceremonies. That's not what it's about. You come in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit living in you. So everyone, regardless of gender and race and socioeconomic condition and geographic location, approaches God in the same way, on the same terms, through the truth of Jesus and the Spirit living inside of them. All are welcome. That is an amazing new message. And and the woman, she hears that and she believes that. We know she believes because of what she does next. So, So this is the moment of this woman's salvation. She has believed that Jesus is her savior. And now that she's believed in Jesus, it's time for her to get to work. Jesus has a mission for her. So let's pick that up in verse 27. I've already read, at this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Jump down to verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. what's, What's remarkable to me in this story is that we never learn the name of this woman. We call her the Samaritan woman. We don't know her name. But we do know her impact. And it's huge. She has an amazing impact. I want you to think for a moment about what she's doing here. So she walks back into her town. Into the place where she has been used and abused for years. The place where she is full of shame. That whole town looked down at her as a used up woman. Completely worthless. Not even worth marrying. They all looked down on her. And yet she boldly walks into the center of that place of her shame and she declares 
that Jesus is the Messiah. And apparently she's really good at public speaking because the whole town comes out. They all want to know what this is about. They all follow her out to Jesus. And on that first day, many of them are saved. And on the second day, many more are saved. And by the end of the account, we are meant to believe that pretty much the whole town has come to trust in Jesus. Now, here's a remarkable thing. Guess what never happens in the entire rest of the gospel accounts? A whole town comes to trust in Jesus. This is the only place. And did you see who brought it about? It wasn't a disciple. It wasn't Paul. It was a Samaritan woman whose name we don't even know. She does what no disciple ever did. She leads her whole town to Jesus. I love this story because it is the quintessential underdog story. This is a woman who people didn't even care to know her name. And yet God reaches out to her, saves her, transforms her, and uses her to do something that no disciple ever did. Most successful evangelist in the entire gospel accounts is this woman whose name you don't even know. That is what God does throughout the Bible. He grabs hold of and saves and transforms and uses men and women whom the world had given up on. I'll give you just a few examples. You got Joseph, this kid who is a a slave in Egypt and then a prisoner in Egypt. God uses him to save that entire nation from starvation. You got Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute who saves her family and becomes part of the genealogy of Jesus himself. You have Daniel, a prisoner of war, who becomes second in command of the greatest kingdom on earth. And you have the Samaritan woman, whose name you don't even know, who no self-respecting Jew would even talk to, and yet whom God saves and uses as one of the most effective evangelists in the history of the planet earth. I love to see how God uses the people who the world has given up on. So as the men head back to prepare communion, I want to ask you a couple questions. I want to challenge you to think about a couple things. First of all, I want you to ask yourself, are you the Samaritan woman at the beginning of the story? And what I mean by that is in, in, a, in a group this large, I, I'm, I'm assuming that there are some of you here this morning that you feel like a failure. You feel that either through bad choices you made or bad things people did to you, that your life is a tragedy, that you are valueless, that you're hopeless, that you're worthless. I want you to know if you feel like that's you, this story is telling you, you are never hopeless. There is hope for you today. In fact, Jesus really wants to give hope to you. He will break any religious, social taboo out there to bring you love and hope and salvation. I I, I like to help people understand, if you've lived a really hard life, if you've struggled with tragedy and bad decisions and you've really screwed up or people have really screwed you up, I want you to know that in Jesus, your best days can still be in front of you. Whatever was good in your past can be nothing compared to what will be good in your future if you will let Jesus save you, transform you, and use you like he did this Samaritan woman. Her best days were in front of her from this story. So 
don't give up. There is hope for you. If Jesus reached her, Jesus can reach you. If Jesus used her, Jesus can use you. So that's the first question to think about for yourself. Second question, I want you to ask yourself, who are the Samaritan women in your life? Who are the men and women in in your work, at school, in your neighborhood, in your town, who the world dismisses? Who in the eyes of, of the world, they're losers, they're, they're worthless, they're, they're broken, they're hopeless. Who are the people that you know? Think about them by name. Think about their face. I want you to ask yourself, how can you be like Jesus to that person this week? How can you sit at the well with them? Maybe it's just go to lunch and listen to their story. I'm amazed often at how many people go through life and no one ever cares to know their story. Okay, so ask them their story. Maybe you can serve them in some way. Maybe you can honor them. Will you treat them like Jesus does this woman? As a person who deserves our love and our respect. Will you reach out to those Samaritan women in your life? Because the remarkable thing, if, if you are, are kind of an upstanding Christian, you've really walked with the Lord all your life, you realize that according to scripture, if you are to show love to that Samaritan woman in your life, and, and, and he or she believes the gospel and is transformed by God and is used by God, according to scripture, it is more likely that that person will have a world-changing impact than that you will. It's true of me too. How does our God love to roll? He loves to save the people the world has given up on and transform them into heroes the world never saw coming. You can be the person who reaches that next Samaritan woman who's going to prove to be one of the greatest evangelists who's ever lived. And so who are the Samaritan women in your life that you can reach out to? We have a God who loves to save Samaritan women. He loves to save and use the underdogs. And ultimately, that's what we celebrate in communion. Communion is a chance to remember what Jesus gave up so that sinners like us can be redeemed and transformed and used. It's a time for us to remember Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And this morning, I'm, I'm going to direct you a little differently than I typically do during communion. I, this morning, when the elements are passed, what I want you to do is I want you to close your eyes and I want you to picture that you're at the well. I just want you to take a moment and think about what that would be like. I want you to remember the background that we've talked about. I want you to remember that if if you're there at the well, if you're watching this scene, or maybe you are the Samaritan woman in this scene, I want you to remember that when Jesus opens his mouth and speaks to you, he just broke every cultural rule, every religious rule, every societal expectation. He did it to have a conversation with you. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he cares about you. I want you to just think for a moment. What would it be like? Because that is what Jesus does for each and every one of us. He comes down and reaches out to sinners who don't deserve the time of day from him. And in humility and love, he rescues us. So I want you to picture that you're at the well. I want you to think about what it would be like to be with Jesus in this moment. And I want you to give thanks. And if you'll come forward. the night before he was arrested Jesus took bread and after he had given thanks he said to his disciples this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me then after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful this morning that you are the the kind of Savior, the kind of God who would humble himself to become human and, and to walk among us, not as a prince crowned in glory and wealth, but as a poor carpenter's son. When you walked on this earth, you, you didn't choose the, the easy path. You, you always chose the path that allowed you to show incredible love to people whom the world had given up on, and we praise you for that. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that, that you love us more than we love ourselves. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you love the people of this world whom the world does not love, whom the world has given up on, whom the world hates, whom the world demeans. You love them all. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a savior for all mankind, not just the good people. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you love to save the people who seem beyond hope. We pray, Lord God, that you would, that you would work in our hearts to help us to love the Samaritan women in in our lives the way that you do. For each of us, it's going to be somebody different, a group or an individual who is just hard to love. It's, It's easy to overlook them. It's easy to look down upon them. In the eyes of the world, they're they're useless and worthless. And and God, it's so hard for us to show love to them. So we pray that you would break our hearts to love them like you do. We pray, Lord God, that you would push us outside of our comfort zones. You would help us to be the kind of church, the kind of people who will sacrifice any respectability to be able to love the unlovely. We pray, Lord God, help us to touch the untouchable. Help us to, to come near the people whom the world has given up on and to show them love like Jesus did. I pray that this week, for each of us, that you would help us to to show love and, and to listen and to care for someone who seems beyond hope. And I pray that by doing that, Lord, that you would win so many underdogs into the Christian faith and that you would transform them and use them to do greater things than we can even imagine. We thank you that you're the God of the underdog. We praise you, Heavenly Father. You are so good. In your name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, let's end in worship.